Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Last year, I spent about a month teaching through Proverbs 29, 18. If you were here, you remember that, or if you heard it online or whatever. The verse was, where there's no clear prophetic vision, uh, the Greek can be translated where there's no clear prophetic seer or person, people quickly wander astray. Does anybody remember that? Okay, awesome. Alex does. <laughs> uh, no, I know a lot of y'all do too. Um, where there's no clear prophetic vision, people quickly wander astray. I don't know about you guys, but I find myself journeying back to that revelation more than maybe any other of the past year. We didn't know this at the time, but that became the peace, P-E-A-C-E, peace, to walk through the next revelation that he is still working on us with, which is a lack of trust that we've had. That The understanding of clear prophetic vision and how that keeps us on track actually became the piece to walk through when he started showing us where places in our lives we have lacked in trust. So um, to have a clear prophetic vision, in a nutshell, means you know where this is going. To, to, to walk with a clear prophetic vision means you know whatever you're walking through, you know exactly where it's going, which at the core of it is good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So at the root of it, even if you don't know specifics, the one thing we know above all is that whatever you're walking through, the end is good. Okay? If you know where it's going then you also know what he's doing currently, which is working all things together for the good. So, for example, without clear prophetic vision, just to use an analogy that we've been using lately, without clear prophetic vision, you see emptying as negative, and you start doubting if he's even good. When he starts to pour you out without a clear prophetic vision, you you quickly wander astray. Maybe he's not good. Maybe what he said isn't true. And you start tracing. With clear prophetic vision, you find joy in emptying because you know exactly where this is headed, a filling with something much more extravagant than what he poured out. Do you see the difference there? One is hope. The other is doom and gloom. The difference is knowing, which all of us as Christians should know. If you're saved, you should know exactly where this is going. Good. So, this has to be the starting point for what we're going to see today. I'm, I'm actually teaching through something new, which is rare for me. So, uh, this has to be the starting point. To sound like a broken record, or as I like to say, a perfected record, intimacy with Jesus the Christ is everything. John 1 says, through his creative expression, this living, excuse me, through this creative inspiration, this living expression, Jesus, made all things, for nothing has existed apart from him. Life came into being because of him, for his life is light for all humanity. Why is intimacy with Jesus everything? Because everything was created through Jesus. In other words, you can't access anything whatsoever apart from going through the one that everything was created through, Jesus. So a lot of times we try to go through the back door, which is, 
I really, I really would love a great job. And so instead of going through Jesus and what he wants for our lives, we'll try to go through the back door and start begging for a better job. And when he doesn't provide a better job, what do we do? We'll start doubting if he's good. Do you, do you see how this happens? Rather than going through Jesus saying, if you give me a better job, great. If not, that's great. I'm going after you. And whatever else happens after that, let it fall as it may. That's what the song, that uh, tis so sweet, that song has been messing with my life. And I hated it as a kid because we sang it every week with an organ and a choir. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. That, just that idea, the Lord has been asking me, do you find it sweet to trust me and just take my word for what it is? Or do you find it sweet when things start working out in your favor or you know exactly what I'm doing? Because a lot of times those two, those two things aren't the same. Most of the time, you're walking in a season where you don't have any idea what he's doing because it's sweet to trust in just his word. <clears throat> the only way to have clear prophetic vision is to be living every moment in the one who all things find their existence in. When intimacy starts to falter, we transition from prophetic vision to natural vision. The two are always present in some capacity, but the one that you see the most will always dictate how you translate the other. I need to say this one more time. Okay? The two, prophetic vision and natural vision, are always present in some capacity in your life. The one that you see the most will 100% of the time dictate how you translate the other. So if you're being led by what you just see in the natural, you'll always start to translate prophetic vision, his vision for your life, through the lens of the doom and gloom of what you see in the natural. If prophetic vision is what's leading your life, you'll start translating what you used to call doom and gloom as joy because you're seeing it through clear prophetic vision. Do you see how this... So intimacy with Jesus is everything because as long as you're with him, he's the one that you see everything through. The minute you step away from him, you start seeing him through everything. So the eyes that burn like fire that you used to be attracted to have started looking a lot colder because you're seeing them through a winter season. So if we haven't been spending time with the Lord because we do the priority thing, you start having anxiety about what you see around you because you only see what you're currently facing. That then dictates your prophetic vision, which starts being stripped of its hope, purpose, trust, dreams, anticipation, etc. On the flip side, if you have one desire and one thing that you seek to dwell with him and gaze upon him forever, you could be walking through the valley of death and fear nothing because your prophetic vision, which is goodness and mercy chase after me all the days of my life, are dictating how you translate the valley of death. All that Psalm 23 right there. You see how that works? Date, I, and I feel like I've quoted David in Psalm 23 a lot lately. I haven't even read that. It's just something that keeps popping up in my mind. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. Why? Because at the end of it, he gives us insight into how he thinks. 
goodness, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So because goodness is chasing me all the days of my life, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear anything. This was David, the one who was out playing harp for a bunch of sheep, leading worship for no one but Yahweh himself, when Samuel comes in and goes to Jesse and says, I want you to bring all your sons, bring them right here. One of your sons is going to be the anointed king over Israel. Jesse goes out and brings all his sons, and Samuel's looking at all these that the world would normally say, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one. Samuel gets to the end and says, is there not any more? And Jesse says, well, there is one more. Do you know why David wasn't present in all the sons that were there when Samuel showed up? Because David was the only illegitimate son of Jesse. David, if you, chase, if you trace Jewish history, wasn't there because all of those were sons of a mother who was the wife of Jesse. David was one born of a concubine. He was the only illegitimate son. Samuel shows up to anoint a king, and he goes through every single person who the world would have said, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one. And he says, is there not another? And Jesse, the father, says, well, there's one. You probably don't want him. He's scrawny. He's out there watching the sheep. And Samuel immediately says, go get him. And when David shows up, the Spirit of the Lord fills Samuel, and he says, that's the one. The one no one else wanted, the one the father didn't even care to bring out. That's the one. Why? Why was he the king of Israel? Because they had had a king that was so narcissistic that when someone stepped up and people started praising them over him, which eventually was David, he started going after to kill the one that God had anointed. That was the king that they had in this moment. God was looking for a king who was willing to be a nobody in the field and be consistently obsessed with one thing I desire and this shall I seek forever to dwell in your house and gaze upon the beauty of your face. And the Lord begins to hear a harp playing out in the middle of a field that no one else is at. And he says, the noise coming from that man tells me he's the one. And he becomes the one that Jesus comes in the line of. Jesus was called who? The son of David. John the Baptist comes onto the scene. Man, see, the, John the Baptist comes onto the scene in Luke 3. He comes onto the scene, and he is in the line to be the high priest. Zechariah is the high priest, which is the highest level of success you could have in the church. In that time, the high priest. John is Zechariah's first son, which means he's in line as soon as Zechariah loses that position to step in and be the top dog in the ministry. And he chooses to go into the wilderness and preach a message that was unheard of in that time. 
We don't understand. John is preaching, repent and your sins will be forgiven. That goes against every single thing they had been taught from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament says, if you'll bring a sacrifice, your sins will be forgiven. John is out in the wilderness preaching, if you'll just change how you think and turn from your wicked ways, he'll forgive you. In other words, a sacrifice in your heart was a lot more effective for the kingdom that was here than a sacrifice of an animal. He's preaching a message that seemingly goes against all of Scripture. Do you understand this? And he's out in the wilderness, he's eating locusts, wearing just some ragtag outfit, and there was one man who baptized the son of the living God. Wasn't the high priest. It was the one who gave up the position to be the high priest to go out into the wilderness because he found something that was a lot more effective for the culture than being the one that was on top of the ministry pole. Do you, I'm so glad this isn't like the live stream's down today, so I feel free. <clears throat> The one prophetic word, and before I say this, this has nothing to do with me. I, I could care less about what I do in my lifetime. But the one prophetic word that was spoken over my life, and I never got it honestly until this week fully, I believe, was that I was leading worship. I was probably 19, I think I was 19 years I was leading worship at a church in Ohio. I forget the exact city, but this guy, his name is Jordan Beal. He used to be one of my friends. We used to travel and play music and stuff like that in the same um, around the same, you know, people and churches and stuff like that. And I was leading worship one day, and he spoke to me, and he said, I feel the Lord burning this in my spirit. Now, I've, I've had thousands, of, because of the culture I grew up in, thousands of prophetic words spoken over me. And if I'm being honest with you, just me being straight up, I took most of them and said, hey, that's great, and kind of just, you know, put them on the back burner. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to change the globe. I'm like, yeah, okay. I hope. That here, here, and maybe, maybe those are. But here's the word that was spoken. He said, you're the John the Baptist of this generation. I didn't understand it. I was like, okay, cool. I guess I'm preparing for the second coming because that was my mindset back then, right? It's kind of funny now. But, um, but anyway, and so I go through life, and that's the one prophetic word that I held on to. And this week, he takes me back to Luke 3, and I start reading through John the Baptist and reading through his story. And I notice one thing. He's preaching a message that paved the way for the kingdom of God through Jesus, but it was a message that every other person in the day had a gut check about initially. Let me just read this real quick. I'm going to Genesis. I promise I'm going to Genesis 22. I just feel the Lord moving. <clears throat> in Luke 3, it says this, During those days, everyone was gripped with messianic expectations, believing the Messiah could come at any moment. 400 years of nothing. And then a voice cries out, and the Bible says, the lonely wilderness, repent, prepare yourselves, because he is coming. If you'll change your heart, He'll forgive your sins, and you'll make way for the kingdom that all of this was setting up for. And it made a people so expectant that at any moment when Jesus showed up, they were ready. 
I believe what God is doing in us. I don't even know if that was a prophetic word for me as much as it was for this church. That I believe what he's doing in us is he has put us in a lonely wilderness where our message week in and week out, day in and day out is prepare the way, prepare the way, prepare the way. And a group of people are finally starting to see that he's coming with his kingdom with him. I read this yesterday that uh, the leading cause of death in the world in 2019, do you know what it was? Anybody have any idea? I told you, so don't tell me. Anybody have any The leading cause of death in 2019, does anybody know? Abortion. 3,000 babies a day are killed in America. 3,000 a day. If, and let me say, if you've had an abortion, the, the Lord is so faithful to forgive and so loving. But we have got to stop letting the culture tell us what we are to believe. Because right now, if I walked into any church in America, walked in, stood on the stage and said, I look like Jesus. Right? We're made in the image of God. If I walked in a church, which every Christian looks like Jesus, by the way, and said, I look like Jesus, I would get crucified in America. If I walked into any church, those same churches, and said, I'm a man, but I think I want to be a woman, I would get cheered. This is the culture that we've allowed to be created around us because all Christians have done for the past 20 years, and I say this in love, is sit on the couch and let our authority be given to the world to do whatever they want with it. And I'm telling you right now, what God is doing in us is he's putting us in a wilderness where we're saying, if you'll just change how you think and turn back to God, that's what repent means. Change how you think, which produces a turning back to God. If you will repent, the Lord is bringing a kingdom with him that is so powerful that all this stuff that we struggle with and the idea behind how we can kill that many babies in a country that is free, that was founded to be a country that worships the Lord. Why do you think it says in God we trust and not any other God. It's not because we were designed to be a country that just lets everybody worship whoever they want. It's because we were actually founded on Yahweh. In God we trust. That didn't just come out of thin air. It came from the founders that said, as for me and my country, we will serve the Lord. And as the church has sat back and had a bunch of shows and parades and carnivals, the rest of the world has gone out and utilized the power that we were intended to utilize in the culture, which is setting people free. And more people are on anxiety medicine, and more people are having abortions. You know why people are having abortions? Because they're not waiting till marriage to have sex. Why are they not waiting till marriage to have sex? Because they don't have intimacy with the one that would fulfill every desire until they got joined to another. 
Why don't they have intimacy with the one that they were designed to have intimacy with? Because all we teach on is grace, hope, love, and all the good stuff, and never teach on if you'll have a relationship with Jesus and a consistent intimacy day in and day out, you'll have joy. You'll have love. You won't have to take anxiety medicine because he'll heal you of your anxiety in the eyes of joy. I feel, the, I feel the Holy Ghost all over me right now. And I don't care if anybody else in this room does. I am. We should, we should probably just lay hands on people. I don't know. This is what we're called to do. Just because the, the culture has become more progressive and more progressive and more progressive does not mean we submit the gospel to the lost culture. It means we take the lost culture and say, let me give you something better. <clears throat> the thing I would caution us right here is to make sure that we don't filter this move of God through Christianity in the South. The thing I pray about more than almost anything is that you don't hear teaching in worship and categorize it as another good sermon or another good worship song. I, it, it, it does something weird in me when somebody says, man, that was a word. It, 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 I get this weird check in my spirit. I don't, I don't want people to be like, man, that's a great word. I want you to live it. I want you to take it home with you and live it. I don't care if you think it's a great word. I hope you do. But I don't care if anybody tweets this sermon. Most people aren't. I'm good, I'm good with that. If you, do, if you never tweet one word I ever say, I care if you go home and start seeing his face on a day-in and day-out basis until all the issues you struggle with are submitted to his feet. <clears throat> we don't do the sermon or ser sermon series thing, make you feel a good thing. We don't do that. We do Christianity. We have to start taking this serious. That's why I primarily use, thanks to people like Damon Thompson and other people who have encouraged this, I primarily use Yahweh and Yeshua instead of God. Most, most of the time, I use Yahweh, his name, rather than God. Buddha is called Buddha God. There's only one Yahweh. Even when I say the name Yahweh... I get chill. right now when I say Yahweh, I get something up my spine as I say that. It, it care, because that's breath. Did you know his name in the Hebrew was actually breath? It had no vowels. It was Y W H. It would be in the English language, and it was meant to be breath. It was meant, that was that's his name in the Hebrew. So every time you breathe out, your body manifests the name Yahweh. So every, everybody on planet Earth can say they don't believe in God all, all they want. And every time they take a breath, they're manifesting the fact that Yahweh loves him and he loves the globe. Every breath. How, how do you, you can't make that up. You understand that? The Israelites were scared to even say Yahweh's name because it held so much weight. For us, on the other side of a greater covenant and unlimited access to him, even being filled with him, we have to constantly make sure we aren't being apathetic to the one who is so glorious with a phrase, the entire cosmos come into being. The one who holds so much glory and authority that with a phrase, the earth obeyed and came into being. 
I keep coming back to trust over and over, not because it's a great sermon on how to be happy, but because if we are going to be carriers of what Jesus was killed and raised for, we better not let the word mundane enter our living vocabulary. We, it is illegal to live mundane if you are a Christian. What does that mean? It, I, we all know people like that. People who are always down and depressed and always suffering with some kind of sickness or disease and always think the grass is greener on the other side and are always bringing other people down. Those side, we are not, that is, it is illegal for us to live in that state. Illegal. You've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's why I say, see, we're going to go through stuff. Let we're going to go through some crazy stuff. Seasons are a real thing. However, if the joy of the Lord is your strength and we have joy unspeakable and full of glory, and he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've already overcome everything, then you can have joy in the winter season, summer season. You can be a tree planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in every season. <clears throat> the journey to Yahweh's mountain starts in the valley of proving. With every revelation of his nature comes a proving or testing of how we carry it. And where again and again you will have to answer the question if you trust him. I was going to go into some stuff in James, but to save time, I think I'm just going to go straight into uh, Genesis 22. So let's go ahead and do that, and I might hit the James stuff in a second. But Genesis 22. Here's what happens in Genesis 21. Hopefully you're already there. Genesis 21, Isaac is born. It's a huge chapter for Abraham. Genesis 21, Isaac is born. Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And Abraham gets a call, gets to call, excuse me, Yahweh by a new name. This is, this is really important, okay? So Genesis 21, Isaac was born. Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And then at the end of Genesis 21 in the, in the Hebrew, Abraham calls Yahweh by a name that had not been used for Yahweh before. A brand new identity for God. And it is El Olam. That's how you say it in the Hebrew. That means God eternal, the hidden God, and the always God. Which proclaims that he is eternal over eternal things. Dr. Brian Simmons has a really interesting note on this, and I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, he says, <clears throat> Abraham's, when he calls Yahweh by this new name, Abraham's heart and focus were turning to the God of eternity. The things of the earth were growing meaningless to him. God was giving him an eternal perspective. Abraham was being shifted from what he saw to seeing into eternal realities. Okay? It's important to understand that before you go to Genesis 22 because Genesis 22 and what God asked of Abraham makes absolutely no sense unless you understand what had just happened in Abraham's life. A lot of people will read what I'm about to read and be like, "How God is just mean. How could he do that? Go read Genesis 21. All right. Genesis 22, sometime later, God tested Abraham, all right? 
I want to fix this right here. Most translations translate this, I believe, correctly. And instead of saying God tested Abraham, it says God proved Abraham. I like that a lot better. Um, That's a lot closer to the original meaning. Uh, Testing also works, but God was not uh, being mean and showing Abraham where he was failing. Which when you hear testing, that's what we initially say. Like, God's testing me. In other words, he's showing me where I'm doing a poor job. That's not what he, he was proving Abraham, which is I'm showing you what you have within you. That's a whole nother connotation to I'm showing you where you're wrong. Okay? So that's what he was doing. God proved Abraham. He said, Abraham, yes, I'm here. Abraham answered. God said, please take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom I know you dearly love, and go to the land of Moriah. Man, I'm about to show y'all something that's going to be so cool. Here we go. Circle Moriah, if you will. If you got a pen or highlight or whatever. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up to me as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Isaac was probably about 20 to 25 years old at this point. Abraham had waited 25 years from when God promised him a son in the line of everything else he promised him and when he actually had Isaac. 25 years of persevering and waiting and trusting and persevering. He has Isaac. Isaac turns about 20 to 25 years old, and then God says, I want you to take your only son, go to Moriah, and kill him. This isn't just a son. This is every promise God had ever spoken to Abraham was contained in Isaac. If you remove Isaac from the picture, you have to also remove every promise God had ever given Abraham. This was everything. No questions asked, at least we don't have. Early the next morning, Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering, loaded it on his donkey, and set out for the distant place God had shown him. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the young man. Isaac and I will go up and worship, and then we will return to you. Stop. Real quick, let me point this out. Remember, God told Abraham, I want you to go kill Isaac. Isaac tells the servants, stay right here. Isaac and I both will come back to you. Did he lie, or did he have an understanding of something greater? It, it, either Abraham lied, okay, let me, he didn't lie, or the book of Hebrews said Abraham was convinced that even if God let him carry it out, he would raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he's the father of faith. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on Isaac's back. Abraham carried the knife and the fire, and the two of them walked up the mountain together. Father, Isaac broke the silence. Yes, my son. Imagine, just picture this. We have the wood and the fire. I'm seeing stuff I didn't see before right now. Abraham carried the fire. I, did, I didn't see that before. That'll probably be next week. Um. We have the wood and the fire, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, My son, 
God himself will provide the lamb for an offering. So they went on together. When they arrived at the place on Mount Moriah that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar and stacked the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood on the altar. Then Abraham took the knife in his hand to plunge it into his son. But the angel of Yahweh called him to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm here, he answered. Do not lay a hand on the boy or harm him, he said. For now I know, right here, you are fully dedicated to me since you did not withhold your son, your beloved son, from me. Abraham looked up. His eyes fell on a ram caught by its horns in a nearby thicket. Abraham took the ram and sacrificed it on the altar as a burnt offering in Isaac's place. So Abraham, listen to this, Abraham named that place Yahweh appears. Even to this day it is said, on Yahweh's mountain there is vision. All right, a couple of notes real quick. <clears throat> he says to go to Moriah. Here's why this is very relevant for us right now, okay? What is 2020, the year that God's going to give us clear vision? <clears throat> Moriah means chosen by Yahweh and comes from a root word meaning sight or vision. So literally, Abraham was told to go to the mountain of clear vision. That's, that's Dr. Bryant. That's not me. Abraham was told to go to the mountain of clear vision. Moriah is inside the walls of the modern Jerusalem and is part of the historic temple, uh, excuse me, site of the Temple Mount. Th this mountain is the same exact location David purchased at the threshing floor when the angel appears and there's this whole crazy encounter, and then Solomon eventually builds the temple on. Same location. So one man's willingness to give up what meant the most to him led to that being the place where the presence of God dwelled for an entire nation. Okay. The way to the mountain of clear vision is through a willingness to let go of the things that mean the most to you. Not for him to, t this is a really important caveat, not for him to take them away, but for him to put them in their proper place. What would you sacrifice if he asked you for them or it with no announced reward? In other words, let me say this. If he came to you and asked you to let go of something that has immense value to you with no reasoning, is your trust at a level that says, yes, Lord, or do you doubt him just enough to say, you can touch other stuff in my life, but I got to keep this? To put things a little more into perspective, Isaac represents, and I said this earlier, Isaac represents every promise God had ever given Abraham. Everything God spoke to Abraham has to do with his seed through Isaac. If Isaac died, every word God spoke dies with him. Yahweh wasn't just asking for a son. He was asking for a death to every single thing Abraham had ever hoped in. 
Here, here the, but remember what Abraham did was he left a new revelation of God's nature, which is eternal, and then entered into a proving of the new revelation of the eternal nature. When God starts speaking to us about he is a God that is kind and good and that you can trust, the next moment is him coming to us to prove to us the revelation that he has given us, which is he is a God that you can trust. So as we leave the revelation that he's a God we can trust, we then enter into the opportunity to climb up the mountain of trust, which starts in the valley of are you willing to let go? Why, here's the thing. Why don't we trust God? As a culture, why don't we trust God? Because we trust ourselves to accomplish the things that we were actually intended to be still and let him accomplish on our behalf. So we get halfway results because we trust ourselves more than we trust him. So what he'll do is in order to posture us in a place where he can release the new wine that he wants to release, he'll posture us in a place where we are required to make the decision, do I trust me or do I trust him? That's where Abraham was in this moment. Abraham knew all the promises of God, and God put him in a place where he had to say, either I'm going to hold on to Isaac because he's the one that you promised me, or I'm going to trust that even if I give him up, I know you'll raise him up. I'm unbelievable, okay? And I could, I could trace all this stuff back to Jesus, but I really want to focus on this. There will be moments that in order to clearly see him for who he fully is, he will ask you to release the things that he himself spoke dealing with the current world to set your gaze on an eternal reality, primarily Yahweh himself. Here, this is my story. I was promised over my entire life, you're going to reach thousands, you're going to change the world, you're going to blah, 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 blah. Okay? So as I'm standing on stage in a church where I am reaching thousands and thousands and thousands of people a week, I fully believed this is the fulfillment of everything you spoke. And then he starts saying, hey, Josh, I'm going to need that. And I want you to start a family that a handful of people are going to be interested in. I had a choice to make. Because, listen, like, wh where I was, we, we, I guess we'll just leave this, it doesn't matter. Where I was in that season of my life and in that career was headed straight to the top. No one knew it. I was writing most of the songs that we were doing. And I'm not talking about songs that we were doing for a few people. I'm talking about 30,000 people a week. Right? I was at the place where everything I had ever dreamed of was being fulfilled. And then he comes to me in a whisper and says, I'm going to need that. And I had a choice to make. This isn't about me. I'm just telling you my story. Because every one of us are going to have to make this decision at some point. I had a choice to make. Either I'm going to hang on to everything you spoke over my life. 
or I'm going to let go and trust that that handful of people can make a greater impact than me being on a stage in front of 25,000 people. And here we are today. I mean, look around the room. Every single person in my life that have no relationship with the goodness of God would look at my life and say, man, you really jacked that thing up. People have told me that. Man, are you, you heard from God to do that? Right? And we're over here in worship, and I'm hearing Camille and other people get into a zone where they're beginning to see things in the heavenly realm and host the presence of God in a way that could not be done while a timer was counting me down until my mic was going to be muted. And I'll take that a thousand percent of the time. We, we as a family, have never had less by way in, in, as far as resources go than we do today. As our family, never had, but we've never had more of the one who has eternal resources than we do today. And I'll take that a thousand percent of the time. Now, here's the flip side of that. When you begin to release the things that you used to hold so tight that he would not ever in your life get access to, he begins to give you back in resurrection form the things that earlier would have only had a minute success while you were in control of it. He gives Abraham all these promises. Then he asks for Isaac, the one who is the son of the promise. Abraham is obedient. He goes to the mountain of clear vision. He goes to kill Isaac, and the Lord says, Stop. Now I realize you haven't withhold anything. And then he speaks this. I solemnly promise you by the glory of my own name, declares, declares Yahweh, because you have obeyed my voice and you did not withhold from me your son, your beloved son, I will greatly bless you. I will make sure your seed becomes as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will take possession of the city gates of their enemies because what? Because you have obeyed me, the entire world will be blessed through the seed that moments ago you were willing to kill. Everyone in the room has promises, hopes, and dreams. Does your view of Yahweh change based on the manifestation of those promises, hopes, and dreams? Or is your view of Yahweh consistent in spite of those promises, hopes, and dreams coming to pass in the timing that you think they should? I think, I know it's 12. Let me repeat this. Is the manifestation of everything you want to be in life Let's say you have a dream to be a pastor. And I can speak to that because, you know, let's say you have a dream to be a pastor. And you go through year after year after year after year, and he has not given you a platform to preach at. Do you start doubting he's good because of a lack, seemingly lack of manifestation of your gifting or your hopes or your dreams? Or do you see him as good even if you never get a stage the rest of your life? Do you see what he's trying to do? Because in one instance, the gifts are the idols, which is what I've seen my whole, the, the, the gift is the idol. 
What he's trying to do is make him first and only in our lives, which then is the only legal place we can access the gifts in the kingdom. Is this making sense? Are y'all with me? I'm almost done. Y'all with me? Okay. Good. Good, 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 good. I want to make I want to make sure I'm hitting the couple of things that I want to hit before we go. God wasn't playing games with Abraham. He was adjusting and aligning the order of his word of his world to be Yahweh's seed of a company of people whose DNA gushes with trust in their beloved. Well, Abraham rejoiced that he got one son that he didn't think he would ever have. Yahweh's plan for Abraham was for him to father the globe for eternity. Now, the book of Hebrews says, all who believe are sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham. A- Abraham was excited because they got a son. Finally, the Lord was faithful, and he's saying, no, 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 no. I didn't promise you just a son. I promised you that your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the beach. Abraham dreamed in terms of Isaac. Yahweh dreamed in terms of him being the seed to the entire globe of the faith community. What you're dream- I promise you, what you're dreaming over your life and what you think God's called you to pales in comparison to what he's dreaming for your life. So understand that, number one. Whatever you're dreaming for your life, he dreams a million times bigger for your life. Because you're in the image of God, because he knit you together in your mother's womb for a specific purpose, that you are, Ephesians says, the poetry of God, God's unique creative expression in the globe, that all of the cosmos are standing on tiptoe waiting for you to be manifest. That's how important you are. That's what you have in your life, okay? But understand that the journey to the mountain of where he's dreaming your life to go, where he is hoping your life will be at the end of this thing, is a journey where you're going to probably have to let go of control of all the things that you've been dreaming of. And I don't mean forget them, and I don't mean put them on the back burner, and I don't mean turn and go a different way. I mean let go of control of how this thing's going to turn out. Give your, in other words, take your dreams, lay them on the altar, and say, do as you may, but I'm just going to focus on your face, and my obsession is going to be your presence all the days of my life, and I believe I'm going to be so fulfilled in that that this is nothing compared to what I can have access to in that. Let me tell you how I read this. This is how we should be doing treating the Bible. Let me, let me just kind of tell you how I've been reading this. This is how the Lord told me to read this, and I want you to do this this week. You can do it right now if you want to with me. I want you to put your name in place of Abraham and your greatest hope or dream in place of Isaac. So let me, let me, let me just tell you what he did with, for me. <clears throat> God proved Josh. He said, Josh, yes, I'm here, I replied. He said, I want you to take your church that I know you dearly love and go to the land of clear vision and offer it up as a sacrifice to me. That, that's what Thursday morning he made me sit down and replace 
that right there and look at him in the eye and say, are you willing to do it? Because if I'm being honest with you, no. I'm becoming that. But in the beginning, when he started asking for this, specifically over Christmas break, and I shared some of that with y'all last week, but when he starts asking for this, my response, if I'm taking the mask off and just being real, is no. That's, that's every, if that falls, everything else falls with it. I just don't know if I can let go fully of that. And every day, I'm learning to take one more finger off and one more finger off and one more finger off. And he's getting me to the place where I'm just about ready to let it go. But if I'm just being transparent, I'm not there yet. But he's taking us there. And that's why what we're doing is so important because as a pastor, I can't get up here and tell you I'm perfect and this is how we can all be perfect with me. I'm telling you I'm walking through this right now and he's requiring me to make the choice. Are you willing to lose it? Because I believe when I make that choice fully and completely with every mask removed, we're going to experience such an outpouring of the spirit that this city will never be the same. But I really fully believe it's going to take me making the decision. Are you okay if I place you in the wilderness preaching a message that might seem like it's all from everything everybody else heard, but it's full of the spirit and it's actually preparing the way for Jesus to enter Columbia? Let me just speak this and then we're done. The the Lord was giddy over this account of Abraham's life because he longed to give him something more than he ever dreamed he would have. The Lord, when he goes to Abraham, he knows how it's going to turn out. He, he knows Isaac ain't dying. That's just like we say when Jesus goes to Lazarus. And it says, Jesus wept. Man, the Lord was so, man, he just cried over the death of Isaac. And That ain't why he wept. You know why Jesus wept? Because he showed up to a place where he sent word, this will not end in death, and they're having a funeral. That's why he wept. Now, he is compassionate, let me tell you. But Jesus didn't show up and cry, and then two seconds later said, all right, I guess we'll just raise him from the dead now. You, you See how we do? Jesus knew what was going to happen. Earlier, he spoke, this will not end in death, and then purposely waited until Lazarus died to go. Why? Because he was showing them he wasn't just here to heal temporary sicknesses. He was here to raise a company of people from the dead. So Jesus wept at the lack of faith for a group of people who got the word from the Son of God, this will not end in death, and still had a funeral. How many of us are having funeral over, funerals over things that we think have died when he has specifically spoken over us, they will not end in death? Some of you think your dreams are dead, and they're not. He's just waiting for you to get excited, even in the season where it seems like they're dead, so that he can resurrect them. Jesus alive was great. Jesus resurrected led to all of us being resurrected too. The only way to get to resurrection is to die first though. 
He doesn't just want your dreams alive. He wants your dreams resurrected, which will require them to go through death first. So he said this to me, because, uh, and I was telling, I think you this this morning, and me and my dad uh, just kind of sideways had a t- conversation about this, but uh, Growing up, and we say this a lot in, in the Christian, and this is correct, this is accurate, this is a good thing. Uh, we used to always say, God moves mountains, God moves mountains, God moves mountains. A thousand percent, yes. He does, still moves mountains. If you speak to a mountain, tell it jumped in the sea, yes. But there are some mountains. Let me just let me just tell you how he gave it to me. This is what the Lord said to me. Be careful that you're not asking him to move a mountain that he wants you to climb. Be cautious that you aren't asking him to move a mountain that he intends for you to climb up. How, how many of us have fought against God saying, God, just remove this, remove this, remove this, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to remove this. I'm going to show you you have power over it. I mean, let, let that be a prophetic word this morning to whoever needs it, that you may have been praying for him to take things away from you that he's trying to get you to climb on top of. That's what Abraham, Abraham could not get to the place where God gave him the greater promise until he was willing to climb up the mountain where he would see God clearly, the mountain of clear vision, Moriah. So I believe what the Lord is doing in us is he's saying, do you trust me to the point where you can have so much prophetic vision, you can discern what mountains you need to cast into the sea and what mountains you actually need to get some boots on and start climbing up? I, man, I, f- I feel that. I don't know if y'all do or not. I'm about to start preaching like the people did when I was growing up. My grandpa, I kid you not, some of y'all heard the story. My grandpa has gotten so fired up in a service that he ran from the back of the church to the front on the tops of the pews. Don't know, he's not even athletic. I'm thinking, man, how do I do that? If I could do that, I could definitely make it to the NFL. But um, but that's that's how. We, but I just I feel this all over me for our church, for our city, for America in general. That there are some mountains you are absolutely supposed to have the faith to speak to, and they be cast into the sea. If you speak to a mountain and you discern it's not being cast into the sea, it's not because of a lack of faith. It may be because he's actually trying to get you up it. I mean, how many times can I say that before y'all get that? Do, do y'all do, do you get that? So I just want to pray right now, and as I pray, I, I think we need to release some stuff. Can you, can you just play some music? Yeah. Uh, we, just, we just need to release things. There are some things that all of us, including myself, let me just be, in this moment right now, I'm releasing this church. I am releasing this church. This is not about me. It never was. It never will be. This is about him. And if it's about him, he's in control of this, and where this goes, he's going to have to take it, not me. I'm, I'm releasing this right now. But there are some things in your life that you need to release and trust that in the release, he's going to give you the things that even the words that he spoke over you, he's going to give you them in a resurrected form that are going to take you way further than you ever were while you were holding on to them in your own power. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.